This panel is called, How Hard Should We Be Trying to Piss People Off? <laughs> Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast with insights on the craft and community of writing from leading published authors of our day, with a few thoughts thrown in from aspiring writers like myself. I'm your host, unpublished novelist and screenwriter, Ben Hess. Today's episode is number five, Pissing People Off. And we've got a different format than previous episodes. You're about to hear a lightly edited panel discussion from the recent Writing by Writers conference in Tomales Bay. The panel features poet, novelist, and National Book Award finalist Dorothy Allison, memoirist, journalist, fiction writer, and teacher Steve Almond, an award-winning writer and teacher, and a Writing by Writers co-founder Pam Houston. Given the temperament and sensibilities of these three, rest assured you will hear a range of profanity, so turn it up and enjoy! or bust out the earbuds as needed. And of course, visit writingxwriters.org to book your spot in their 2016 workshops in Methow Valley, Washington, or Boulder, Colorado. I'm also thrilled to include in this episode genuine, heartfelt introductions for each panelist from several University of California Davis graduate students, where Pam teaches. Let's kick things off with student Christina Turner. Dorothy Allison doesn't give a fuck. I mean that statement in the best way possible, and I will revise it. Dorothy Allison doesn't give a fuck about shit that doesn't matter. She doesn't give a fuck about posturing, about pretending, about impressing people or making them like her, or anything less than the honest-to-God truth. And I think that's what has made it so exciting, so liberating for many of us to experience her writing and her teaching. But it is also the sort of thing that will make you learn, like Dorothy does, to give a fuck about all the right things. About a compelling voice, about emotional integrity, and above all, for God's sake, a good story. In her first novel, Bastard Out of Carolina, was the finalist for the National Book Award. And more importantly, it's made possible for so many people here to even envision the writing and living that they are doing now. It broke open the possibility for countless women and men to tell the truth about their experiences. It is a revolutionary thing for a woman to give a fuck about the right things. As Dorothy wrote, two or three things I know for sure, and one is that I would rather go naked than wear the coat the world has made for me. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you this evening, Dorothy Allison. Did I set out to piss people off? You know, I think I did. Um, this morning in workshop, one of the stories, uh, which was beautifully written, uh, was an account of a woman, a very successful executive, uh, dealing with the sexism of the men that she has to work for. And it just took me back to my early 20s when I got a job at the Social Security Administration. Oh, God. Um, it was a, the alternative to working waitress. Um, and there was going to be, you know, health insurance and all this crap. Um, but the first thing is they told me about the dress code. So I had to go buy a series of suits, pantsuits. Um, showed up in my pantsuits and they told me to go home and put on a skirt. Mm. How can you not respond with moral rage? I mean... They weren't paying me enough to pay for suits and skirts. And, and they certainly weren't 
making it possible for me to be sane and follow the rules that were profoundly contemptible and sexist and maddening. Um, and I started writing nasty stories. Um, but the definition of nasty is personal. Um, some of the stories I wrote didn't seem nasty to me. And it would be shocking when I would you know, go to a reading or send something out for publication and the response would be this wave of, oh my God, you can't say that. And why not? Everybody has a pussy. If they don't have a dick, they got a pussy. It's just how life is. And <laughs> as far as I can tell, everybody wants to play with their natural organs, right? Um, and if I'm going to write stories about it, isn't this part of the revolution of light and justice and moral authority? I was claiming a kind of moral authority. Um, early feminists did that. It was that was our territory, honey. <laughs> but it still always shocked me um, when I thought I was being my most understandable, conciliatory, when I thought I was being a good citizen and they thought I was being a demon from hell. Yeah. Uh, and it was always kind of, it was the things that I thought were the most banal that would upset them the most. No, that I want every little girl to learn to kill they didn't take that seriously. I did. They should have been pissed off about that. Um, what is this thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the thing that changed my work was when I stopped giving a fuck. Um, it seemed to me, you need to know that I began as a writer in the small press movement, and I began as a writer working a day job at the Social Security Administration, and then being a receptionist in a photo studio and living in a collective, which I have to say was kind of fun, the collective, especially the pool table where we used to do potluck dinners, but was also kind of miserable and grungy. And that if I'm going to live a miserable, grungy life without health insurance, there has to be some recompense. And it seemed to me that the recompense was that I could claim a level of authority in, by which I was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And telling the truth justified everything. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it pissed so many people off, on some basic level, I didn't care. Uh, the guy that showed up and fired a shotgun into our front door did give me a pause. <laughs> but we moved immediately. <laughs> actually left town and moved to another town, uh, which I recommend if somebody shoots your front door down. Um, and I went on telling stories. Um, when I published Bastard Out of Carolina, it startled me that people were so angry at the mother in that book. She was not the one that I was angry at when I was writing. I understood her. I thought I put enough there that people would understand her thought processes and what she was doing, that by leaving her child, she was saving her life. But instead, everywhere I went all over the country, people were pissed off at this mother, this nasty mother who you know, didn't kill her husband, but instead took him away from her daughter. Um, and it was educational. It seems to me I am always in process. I am always becoming. I think I'm becoming the person I'm supposed to be. Uh, but it is a long process, um, and sometimes I have to make peace with pissing myself off, or feeling vulnerable, or feeling naked, or getting those letters from people who hate you. Um, that's, I'd like to pretend that it doesn't affect me, 
but it does affect me. You know, you got those sleepless nights, and you don't know that what you're doing, you don't know what that what you're doing is worth the process you go through to accomplish it. Um, so that I am always getting stronger. It seems to me that the essential muscle I have got to develop is that I don't pay attention to the people who get too pissed off. Uh, family, I'll deal with family. They can yell at me. I'll stand in the room. I think that's how you. That's family. Uh, but if you ain't family, I'm not standing around while you yell at me. I grew up in the South, just an hour or so down I-85 from Dorothy's Greenville, and I had been blown away by her magical combination of dialogue and description and character that just converges to create a South I could never write, but one that I recognize immediately. For our next panelist, here's graduate student Ryan Horner. Steve Almond is a generous writer, the kind of writer who leads his readers from alongside them, who lets the reader do the heavy pulling so that they might then take ownership for the heavy emotional rewards. A few days ago, determined to learn more about the man than from what I'd heard in interviews online, I picked up against football and found an intelligent and sincere voice, like a wise elder who knows wisdom isn't what we youngsters believe it to be. <laughs> then last night, a friend lent me a collection of his short fiction so that I could read a few stories before bed. And I promptly spent half the night in the bathroom, sitting on the tile floor, reading by cell phone light, until suddenly it was nearly 3 a.m., and my butt was numb, and my eyes had been dry, but now they were wet, and I had to try for sleep. But first, before sleep, I had to deal with the things I had learned about myself from his stories. In my brief but intense exposure to Steve Allman's writing, there is one thing I've learned for sure. He cares deeply, unabashedly, about how his reader lives in the world, sure, but also about how he does. He cares about how the bad guys are ruining the world, sure, but especially about how the good guys are. Steve, I promise I'll buy your book instead of just borrowing it indefinitely. <laughs> it's my pleasure to introduce Steve Almond. It's like the world's best book report ever. <laughs> when I was in graduate school, I was writing very timid work for any number of reasons, mostly having to do with the fact that people grow up with a kind of omerta, uh, or maybe various forms of omerta, kind of codes of silence. And the first one is within your family, and that one lasts forever, and the attendant anxieties of breaking that silence. And, um, and then there's a whole other set of omertas in your peer group, maybe in your socioeconomic class, or ethnicity, your cultural, your place in the culture, things that are not, you're not allowed to say because um, they're too painful or disruptive. And then interestingly, when you're asked to be a writer or you assign yourself the task of being a writer, part of what your intention is is to break some of those silences. And then the inevitable result of that is that people get disturbed by it. You're really, tr part of your job, it's not all your job, but part of your job is to deal with unbearable feelings and to disrupt. And so naturally, if you're doing your job, then people are going to be disrupted. And, you know, 
that's easy to say, but it's hard to experience because you love some of those people um, and you feel loyalty to them. And you also want to be liked and loved, and it's upsetting when people are suddenly angry with you, even if they're not your family or your friends or ex-lovers or current lovers or hoped for future lovers. <laughs> One thing I remember very clearly in grad school was that I was writing these stories that were very timid and safe and were not really dealing with unbearable emotion. And I remember I read Bastard Out of Carolina mm. by that lady over there. And then I got very interested in her work because I thought that novel was beautiful and painful and really uh, sh sharp-edged. And I searched around and found a bunch of her other um, books, including this one. Remember that one? Which is called The Women Who Hate Me, which is a, like a compilation of Dorothy's poems, um, early poems. And it was kind of liberating for me to uh, read especially the title poem, but also the other poems. Because it hadn't occurred to me that part of what I was hiding in my little hidey hole wasn't just my disappointment, guilt, and so forth, but also that I was aggrieved and full of rage. Some of it misplaced and fucked up and my shit to work out, and some of it actually well-placed and necessary. In other words, that anger is sometimes a necessary form of self-assertion. And that's what that poem was to me. Uh, I also um, read and was instructed by um, Pam's stories, especially How to Talk to a Hunter, which is not in the same style, but has a kind of undercurrent of rage and indignation at men and their relentless bad behavior. Um, and in fact, years later, when I'd gotten a little braver as a writer, wrote a kind of response to that story, My Life in Heavy Metal, which was, I think, the man's version of that story, um, which was full of rage, but in the form of self-loathing, expressed as destructive behavior to the women around this character. Totally unbiographical, uh, autobiographical, <laughs> of course. Um, and so that's the central thing that I would say is that I don't intend to make people, to piss people off. I intend to tell the truth about the things that matter to me. And as a logical and necessary byproduct of that, it ends up pissing people off. Um, and I think actually sometimes that's really good news. My homage to Dorothy's wonderful poems is this crazy little book, Letters from People Who Hate Me, um, which is in fact full of letters from people who hate me for various reasons, <laughs> shockingly. But it, it's only just by way of saying that um, sometimes that is the, in, it's never your, your intended effect. That's demagoguery, that's provocation, and it's dogma, and it's easy. Because in the end, I think what you're, what you, the place you're trying to end up and the, what you're moving through is doubt and uncertainty, if you're being honest. But um, it is part of the, tradition of writers and artists that there is a prophetic role in, in what they do. That's why I was such a big fan of Vonnegut. There was a kind of moral rage that drove his books, and that's why I was drawn to writing, and I think in the end it was a response to that omerta that I mentioned at the beginning, that, that part of being a writer is breaking certain kinds of codes of silence that absolutely need to be broken. I just love the transparency in Steve's writing and how he talks about the craft. Let's get to our third panelist, Pam Houston. Here's graduate student Becky Mandelbaum, followed by a free-flowing, insightful conversation amongst our three panelists. 
The first time I read How to Talk to a Hunter, I was 19 and in a fiction writing workshop at the University of Kansas. When I finished reading it, I sat dumbstruck. The next day, the professor provided our class an abbreviated biography. Pam Houston is a badass, he said. She raises these big fucking dogs on a ranch in Colorado. As it turns out, anyone with internet access can figure out that Pam raises big fucking dogs on a ranch in Colorado. Dogs who, I might add, deserve every ounce of the incredible life she shares with them. The internet will also tell you that Pam is the author of five books, that her stories have been selected for the Best American series, the O. Henry Awards, and the Best American Short Stories of the Century, that she is generous with her time teaching both at the Institute for American Indian Arts and at UC Davis and doing things like this. What the internet can't tell you is what it's like to be around Pam, in a classroom, at a conference, on a trail in the mountains, because when Pam talks, it's impossible not to listen, to hold your breath and lean just a little bit closer. It seems that nothing is impervious to this pull. When she goes out into the world, the world cannot help but step toward her, be it in the form of bear or elk or overzealous grad student. <laughs> the internet will also not tell you that Pam is as generous as she is smart, as smart as she is funny, as funny as she is kind that she will share her last piece of chocolate coconut candy or hold her dog Livy's paw the entire night before a surgery or sing the entire length of One Tin Soldier just to prove that she fucking can, <laughs> which she can. <laughs> if you need proof of Pam's talent, you need only to pick up one of her books. And if you need proof of her heart, which is always on, always searching the world's dark waters like a lighthouse, then you need only to speak to one of the many people or animals who know her as a teacher, a mentor, a friend. Please help me in welcoming Pam Houston. There's a, a wonderful thing that happens to some women around 50. It's like you come out of a cloud of some kind, and it, it must be hormonally assisted. But you, you don't care what men think anymore, <laughs> and or at or at least you don't care more what they think than what other people think. You know, you you don't give them a special power, and it's kind of a miraculous power that you give them until then to decide whether you're okay or whether you're allowed to say or do a certain thing or whether, in fact, you even exist at all. I've never said these words before. <laughs> um, I really haven't. I, I've, I've, never, I've, never thought of, I've never thought exactly in these terms, although I've been writing this a little bit in this memoir I'm working on. Um, and no one would look at my life, my hunting, guiding, bear, chasing, river guiding. I was the first licensed female hunting guide in Alaska. I mean, no one would look at my life and say, oh, that little woman was kept down by her men. Like, no one would ever say that. But it was more about the power I gave men to, to give me an existence. God, I hate to say that. But it's true. There, like, it was something like if, if, that, if a man didn't look at me in a particular way, I didn't exist. That's the best way I can say it. Even though I was going about my life, I was writing my books, I was 
you know, on fresh air, you know, like, uh, and yet, in, on some way, I didn't exactly exist. And, and I, I only know that now. I never would have known it at the time or said it. I only know it now. And, and so a lot of what I did up till now was trying not to make anyone mad at me. Which, which does not mean I'm not proud of the books I wrote, but I spent a lot of time trying not to piss people off. And, and those people had lots of faces, and it wasn't just the men. It was, it was my, my editor. I was always trying to not piss my editor off, though I loved her very much, and she was very much like a mother to me. This is Carol Hogsmith, for those of you who know who she was. It, it was my readers. You know, Cowboys Are My Weakness, now, when I look back on it, seems like a book I wrote about all my dumb boyfriends. Like, it, it seems like a book I wrote when I knew absolutely nothing about anything. And I didn't even know how to take responsibility for my own actions. Though I, I think it's got some nice sentences in it. I, I'm, I, am, I am, you know, I have great affection for that girl, and I am embarrassed by her worldview. But, you know, she was 27, so what kind of worldview could she have? But, but, but when I look back on that book and I remember the rage it caused, I, I got letters and letters. I got letters from feminists, from self-identified feminists that said, I set feminism back 50 years. Can you imagine the power that I had that I could set feminism back 50 years? I knew you had talent. <laughs> so, so I guess I would say the difference between me right now and then is that Back then, I was working really hard not to piss anyone off and pissing them off anyway. And now, I'm more inclined to try to piss people off, though that's not my first goal in any way. But it's something that I'm now allowed to do because I no longer feel that my existence is, that someone else is in charge of my existence, I guess what I mean. So I have written a few things lately that have pissed people off. Um, and I guess I will say the difference between those things and the old things is that I knew it, they would. <laughs> you know, I knew they would when I wrote them, and that was OK with me. And one was an essay for uh, an anthology called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed that was about my decision not to have children and my belief that that decision does not necessarily mean I am selfish or more selfish than a woman who had children or irrevoc irrevocably fucked up by my childhood. And that pissed a lot of people off, and I expected it to, and the letters came, and I was sort of, I sort of greeted them with pleasure. I, I did. Um, and then I wrote uh, this essay called Corn Maze about the line between fiction and nonfiction, which I absolutely oh, knew would piss people yeah. off, and where I said that, you know, I, I mean, I just said the, the, the thing that's probably very obvious to most people in this room, which is that language can't necessarily represent reality, and that, uh, and that to pretend it does to pretend that that's a simple thing in what we call creative nonfiction is is uh, is an outrageous assumption. And then the third thing I wrote, I wrote more recently this essay, uh, "What Has Irony Done for Us Lately," which opens with a kind of the the notion that perhaps the academic stance of irony, condescension, hollow chuckle as the only possible response to what's happening to all the, the outrageous things that are happening in the world right now just might not be the most useful 
might not <laughs> might not be the most. So so those are the three things that I've written lately that that I and and, it, and I came from a different place and and that place and that this is why I opened with that terrible confession. Um, that place, I I only feel like I can stand in that place now, that place of saying I have something to say about the world. I have something to say about, you know, I have something to say on Twitter, I have something to say on Facebook. I, I was called recently on Twitter in the same tweet, um, a liberal, a cunt, and a moonbeam. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so great. Like, it's just, it's so great. Like, they don't know you're a fiction writer when they send you a tweet like that. Like, they don't understand the gift that they've given you. <laughs> when they call you a liberal, a cunt, and a moonbeam all in one tweet. Um, but, but anyway, that's, that's an aside. What I'm really saying is that I, um, this, I, I always used to say, and this is why I wrote much more fiction than nonfiction when I was young, one reason. Um, I didn't understand nonfiction when I was young at all, and I'm only beginning to understand it now. Um, but I used to say, you know, it's so much more powerful to tell a story than to stand in a place and say how I think. It's so much more powerful to tell a story. And part, a big part of me still believes that. But this ability to stand in a place and say what I think and say it publicly and say it in writing and say it in this thing we all have agreed to call nonfiction is, um, is new and uh, and and brought about by a lot of years on the planet and a lot of years of paying attention and a lot of years of therapy. And I also think a significant hormonal decrease. <laughs> I, I think that I, I, it is so different than how I used to feel I have to believe it is chemically assisted. Boy, nice. All right. <laughs> Well, and then what about your hormones? Yeah, what about my hormones? And so some of what what my work has you know concerns itself with are really huge instances of that. Like the fact that the central narrative in our country, the central thing that binds most people in this country that is inhabits them emotionally and psychologically and even spiritually. The biggest thing, it's not religion, it's certainly not politics, it is sport, and specifically football. And as a you know, card-carrying fan of football for four decades, I finally had this moment of saying, well, gee, if I'm gonna run around all over the place saying, you know, we are in big trouble and uh, you know, our, our way of moving through the world is decadent and uh, almost pornographically violent and we're out of control and nobody's taking moral responsibility, then I better take some moral responsibility for being a football fan, trying to understand what it's about and learn more about what that sport and our attachment to it not just does for us, but does to us. Well, the problem with Against Football as a book is not that, um, and the problem is it didn't piss off enough people because nobody wants to read it if they're a real, nobody who needs to read it wants to read it. Um, you know, forget it. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, the part of me that's still a drooling, you know, uh, worshiper at that particular cult of hyper-masculinity and patriarchal prerogative uh, doesn't want to read a fucking book telling me uh, how corrupt that arrangement is and how it's corrupted the academic mission of this country and corrupted, you know, as it spins this 
absurd racist fantasy of how poor kids, especially poor kids of color, how it should be empowered and can become pe people who are worth actually giving a shit about. Like that's some angry prophetic shit. And, um, but it's also true to me and important to say, especially because it's a kind of counter narrative to what's generally out there, which is we just fully approve of the fact that this crazy, hyper-violent, brain damage-causing, super misogynist game uh, that, that is also full of, I think, deep racial pathologies and um, a, a, a kind of particular American decadence is our central thing that we share and are supposed to, you know, supposed to feel like it's it's the, it's the all-American game. There's a wonderful group of people here, but you can multiply it by 100,000 times, and that's who's thinking about football as deeply as you're thinking about literature, right? Or maybe it's more than 100,000 times, but... Um, so I think part of... I mean, I guess the reason I bring that up is because I come at this partly from a very male perspective of saying, well, how have I been... How have I been and do I continue to be complicit in the series of very bad decisions that are enabled by people insulating themselves from their actual moral duties in the world. And how have I done that? That's what heavy metal is an attempt to reckon with. I was the bad hunter in that story, or sort of my proxy, you know, fictional character. And that's my attempt to reckon with, well, how did I behave so badly? What made me behave in that way when I was in my 20s? Um, and I wish, I mean, I get a little bit of hate mail, but I wish I got more, and I wish it was deeper and more profound. Well, but, but, but as, as I found out from when I, uh, you know, left BC, and, or I've written things that have, uh, that have gotten into the right-wing world, and the responses actually are very profound statements. They're unreliable narrators, but they're telling a fascinating story about their own rage and desperation, their kind of impotent rage. And that to me is very deep. I'll maybe try to read one of those tomorrow night because I do feel, I wouldn't have put the book out just as a, as a gag. I feel it's absolutely essential that when, you know, much of this country is driven by a kind of, it's not an immoral rage, it's a misguided moral rage. It's a kind of a form of loneliness and a, a sense of emotional and psychological fear and displacement that has always been a part of the American experience. You know, we are, I feel, increasingly sort of at a proto-fascist point with a certain segment of the population in terms of the way they are willing to dehumanize and, and demonize anything that violates their sense of basically prerogative and preeminence. And that's real. You know, you don't have other, uh, I, I don't think there are other developed worlds that are as, uh, developed countries that are as profoundly violent that have as much, uh, you know, as many people with guns, as, vi as violent a popular culture. That's something that is, that's our country, we're up to. So part of my effort to write about that rage is to engage with that and say that they actually have more political power than those of us who think Bernie Sanders maybe is gonna usher in a, an era of actual genuine liberal humanist, you know, uh, politics or governance. Can't hurt, right? So, so I guess what I'm getting at is that rage is an appropriate response. A certain kind of morally grounded rage is an appropriate response to the circumstance we find and you know, we find ourselves in, and also, most importantly, our own complicity. Because, you know, if I wrote against football as somebody who just always hated it and didn't get it and didn't consume it, 
I think it would be a very accusatory scolding book. What I was trying to write about is how you walk away from something that you really love because you know that it's wrong to, to still be there, right? Yeah, I, I just wanted to just talk about complicity for a second. Um, I, I'm, I, I know that what I'm supposed to talk about here is this memoir that I'm trying really hard to write and that's really kicking my ass. Because it, 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 it's, it's all around this question about pissing people off or not. I, <clears throat> this book that I'm writing, which is a story about the ranch where I live, or it's just the story of the ranch where I live, um, and how it has made me a person, how it has created my personhood, and how it's sort of the, it's kind of the great love story of my life in a certain way. Um, it, it, I'm writing it because my publisher wanted me to. <laughs> so, like on the one hand, I'm I'm being the biggest good girl I've ever been at this moment. They really wanted me to write this and that's never happened to me before. I've always written something and then they've said, oh, we wish it were more this way and I've said, too bad. You know, I've always been the kind of bad kid <coughs> a little bit. I, I'm a good sport on tour, but I'm a bad sport in the writing because I won't ever take it the way they sort of try to push it. But this time I just thought, well, they've let me do everything I want, including Contents May Have Shifted, which was really um, an exp you know, a formal experiment and other things that they don't love in general. <laughs> and, and so they were really good sports about that. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do the right thing. I'll, I'll pay that back by writing this memoir. <clears throat> and I had this idea about this memoir. I had this idea of what they wanted, which isn't fair at all to them my idea, not fair at all to them. The idea was, you know, girl from New Jersey comes out, buys a 120 acre ranch at 9,000 feet, freezes pipes, hilarity ensues. You know, like, 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 <clears throat> oh, that wacky Pam, and what was she thinking? All that wacky Pam from New Jersey. So, so already, like before I even tried to write, like I'm, I'm in the state of the deepest self-loathing, right? I am like the worst sellout ever and I can't possibly meet their ridiculous goal, which isn't even their goal. It's, it's just another way for me to hate myself in the process. So about two years go by and I haven't really written anything because I've gotten myself stuck there. And, and then um, I was lucky uh, the way the world is lucky and and one of my colleagues um, at Davis said a sentence to me which was <clears throat> do you expect me to go to this department and ask them to hire a poet who celebrates nature unironically and that <laughs> sentence that sentence like ate at me and ate at me and it ate at me for six months I kept thinking about it and and oddly enough the way these things work, it became um, my inroad to this book. It became the way I could suddenly understand this book. This book was gonna be um, my environmental book, I said. Like, this book is gonna be about the ranch, but it's gonna be me writing about the thing that most concerns me of all the things that could concern me, which are many, all the things that could be keeping us up at night these days. The one that is so heartbreaking for me is not even so much that we're all gonna die because of global warming, but that the Earth is, because the Earth 
has always been my place of safety and my salvation and my teacher and my healer. So it's not even so much that I'm going to die. It's that it's that we're taking it. We're taking all this beauty out with us. And to me, that is at the center of my um, rage and fear and sorrow. And so I thought, okay, this can be. So this book is going to be more than just wacky Pam freezes pipes. This book is going to be, you know, it's going to be this environmental tome, and I'm going to do something good for the world, you know. And then the next step was that I realized this is all about self-implication, which at first felt awful, and then it felt better. Um, <laughs> but in the awful moment, of course, like, like, I mean, there are a lot of people who are destroying the earth faster than I am, but I'm destroying it pretty fast, <laughs> you know? I'm flying all over the frickin' place, you know? And I have these, I have 325 pounds of dog in my life and they just can't fit in a Prius. So, so I, so that self-implication, while at first it seemed like the terrible news, of course turned out to be the good news because that's the only place to write anything from, is that place of self-implication. And, 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 and from there, you know, uh, it makes it makes this idea that I'm big enough now to say things about the world possible, right? In a certain way, as long as the first stone, the first slap, is across my own face, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. This is an interesting word, self-implication. <laughs> find it kind of fascinating. I'm. I realize when I think about my life, who here has seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show? <laughs> cool, you'll understand this. You know the part where um, Frankenfurter brings out his bodybuilder, puts his arm across him and says, look at this, and the other guy says, and the, the girl, my favorite girl, goes up to him and says, pretty nice, and Rocky grabs the guy and says, I didn't make him for you. <laughs> for years and years and years, I love that scene. And then I realized um, I'm Frankenfurter. When I write, I actually do have, this is self-implication, I have a guiding impulse toward my own objects of lust. They're not boys. <laughs> What's more, they're not even... I'm neither. Oh, I know. <laughs> they're not even girls. The women in my life who genuinely excite me tend to be dangerous. If not literally dangerous, they look dangerous. And they move through the world. Oh, honey, just think of all those images from the 50s. Um, think of uh, motorcycle riding, leather jacketed, carrying knives, wearing boots, kick-ass bitches. Those were the women I wanted and wanted desperately, and those were my objects of lust. And while for most of my life, that would be the, those were the people I was actually courting. Now, being a writer, courting means that you're attempting to put on the page a portrait that is attractive to your objects of lust. Well, my objects of lust didn't give a shit what anybody thought of them. Therefore, I had to write in such a way that I was a heroic outlaw figure mm -hmm. so that I would be, let's be frank, sexually attracted to the women I wanted desperately to fuck and to fuck me. This is how <laughs> me and Frankfurter moved through the world. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but that means um, my objects of lust got more and more complicated. Not only did they have to ride motorcycles and be outlaw figures, they had to be well-read. <laughs> As time went on, they had to speak several languages. Um, they had to have had a wild, misspent youth, excess, exceeding my own wild, misspent youth. I, didn't, I couldn't compete with them. They had to be so far, they had to be my, mo my role models. They had to be my passionate objects. Now, I hit menopause. Let me just say, lesbian menopause is not pretty. Duly noted. Duly noted. <laughs> you need this information. You go to your coffee shop, it'll help. But that meant that my objects of lust kind of receded. I was no longer actively flirting with them. And th remember, this mm. is like mm. a reversal, mm. because in my flirting with them, I actually didn't give a shit what anybody else thought that I was writing. Oh, wow. So that a lot of the essays in Skin that are um, very, very frank about sex and sexual violence and my own fascinations with violence and, and a lot of detail. Um, let me just say, when the postmistress in Monte Rio brought me my mail, gave me a look and said, did you name your dildo after your dog or your dog after your dildo? And I'm like, she, she read that in my book. Um, <laughs> and to be the outlaw woman of my imagination, I've got to look her in the eye and say, I just don't even remember anymore. Um, that's not, I wasn't looking to piss people off. I was looking to attract the people I found mm. most valid, most resonant, uh, my objects of lust, sometimes lust, but also objects of admiration. The people I thought were really important, powerful, um, glorified. Mm -hmm. I did want to be an outlaw. I did worship the outlaw model uh, in a radical, lesbian, feminist, provocative manner. Um, but then as my hormones receded, I don't think that essential thing has ever gone away. I am actually no longer in the market for adventure, the way I used to be, she said, speaking in code. Um, <laughs> but there is still seems to be a really strong streak in me that that's my role, that's my model for valid, important, strong work, um, and that I need to live up to that model, um, my own totemic outlaw figures, and I've known some serious bitches and living up to that standard, people who send me letters and tell me I'm gonna burn in hell, I'm like, oh yeah, probably. <laughs> That's not gonna stop me or get in the way. Um, and in fact, let's be terribly, painfully honest, there is a glory in pissing people off. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to a special live panel edition of Story Geometry, and warmest of thanks to Dorothy Allison, Steve Allman, and Pam Houston for sharing such genuine, insightful thoughts and perspective on writing to piss people off. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin. Also, shout out to Kim Rogers for the fantastic notes during the panel, which helped serve as a transcript for this podcast episode. Be sure to rate and review Story Geometry on iTunes. Send feedback via storygeometry.org. 
and sign up for future Writing My Writers events and conferences at writingxwriters.org. I'm your host and editor, at Ben Hass on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.